Welcome. We hope you enjoy this recording from Christ City Church, based in Dublin, Ireland. For more podcasts and information on the church, please visit ChristCityChurch.ie. Thank you for listening. Wonderful. So if you have a Bible uh, or a phone, or it'll be on the screen. If you remember last week, I jumped forward because of COVID crises and change of speakers. So we're sort of going back in 1 Peter, and uh, we're looking at the earlier passage from chapter 2, 11 to 25. Isaac's going to read that, and then Katie's going to come and preach. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that, though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority, whether to the emperor as the supreme authority or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. For it is God's will that by doing good, you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. Live as free people, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as God's slaves. Show proper respect to everyone. Love for the family of believers. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Slaves, in reverent fear of God, submit yourselves to your masters, not only to those who are good and considerate, but also those who are harsh. For it is commendable if someone bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because they are conscious of God. But how is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it? But if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. To this you were called, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Let's pray. God, I thank you for today. Thank you for your passage. Thank you for the words you've given Katie. And I pray you'd speak through her. And please, would you help us listen and learn more about you? In Jesus' name, amen. So hello, I'm Katie, for those of you that don't know. And finally, great to be with you all. I was meant to be speaking last week, and then, yes, COVID happened. So <laughs> finally here, great to be with everyone. Um, just quickly to then recap where we were before we jumped forward last week to later on chapter um, in First Peter. So in chapters one and two uh, of this letter, we were reminded of the preciousness of Jesus Christ, the cornerstone and solid foundation of life. And we saw in chapter two, verse nine, um, that as we place our trust in him, we're given a new identity. We become God's special possession. I think it was Matthew a couple of weeks ago who t- uh, reminded us that who we are affects what we do. So Peter is going to continue along this theme, addressing how who we are affects what we do in the face of hostility. So how are we to respond in the face of hostility in today's culture? When our friends distance themselves from us because of our faith, maybe when a family member or work colleague blanks us because of the view we hold on marriage or sexuality, 
Maybe when people start rumors about us or even withhold a promotion at work because they know we're a Christian. How are we to respond? Well, throughout history, Christians have faced opposition from unbelievers around them. This is not a new thing. Peter, in his letter here, suggests that instead of retaliating to hostility with spiteful words, instead of giving the cold shoulder, that we are to respond with good deeds. Do you see how many times that phrase is repeated in the passage? Live good lives among the pagans, that they may see your good deeds. Later on, do good. And Peter writes that as we do this, there is a promise that comes with that. In verse 12, Peter says, unbelievers will see your good deeds and give God glory when he visits. So as we respond to hostility with good deeds, there will be a future glory given to God, verse 12, and in the present, accusations will be silenced. We see that in verse 15. So a future glory and a present silencing. Imagine the person in your life who's most antagonistic towards your Christian faith. One day they will give glory to God as you live out good deeds before them and their accusations will be silenced. <clears throat> Class, so, sounds good. Sign me up. What are these good deeds? Well, this passage tells us two things. Firstly, the first good deed is that we submit to God and to others. And secondly, that we endure unjust suffering. Great. So I bet this is not what you had in mind. Certainly not just taking the bins out an extra time or buying a colleague lunch. And if you're here today and you're not a Christian, I'll admit it's probably not a great sales pitch to, to come and join us. But perhaps it is stuff like this in the Bible that reassures us that the message of Christianity is probably not made up. This certainly isn't the kind of thing I'd be advocating if I was trying to gather followers or start a religious movement. And yet this is what we see written here. So before we all get up and, and leave, let's look at why Peter suggests these are um, the reasons that we should face hostility today. So the first thing I want us to look at is what is our motivation for submitting and for enduring suffering? We've already seen that it will cause unbelievers to be silenced, that they may be won over to bring God glory in the future. But then the further motivation and the repeated refrain throughout these verses is for the Lord's sake. You see that in verse 13, then in verse 15, it is God's will, and then finally verse 16, live as God's slaves. So the reason we seek to do any of this is for Jesus' sake. Think of a person in your life whom you love dearly and things you do for them, which wouldn't come naturally or you might not want to do, but you do out of your love for them. Perhaps if you're a parent, it's changing your children's nappies, Perhaps it's if you're cooking a meal for someone, you leave out an ingredient they don't like or they can't eat, and you do this because of your love for them. So why do we seek to submit to God and to others and to endure the suffering when it comes? Out of our love for Jesus. And if you feel, like I often do, that your love for Jesus is small and weak, then let's look to the end of the passage to remind ourselves why we love him. Why is he lovable? Why is he lovely? Well, in verse 25, he's described as the shepherd and the overseer of our souls. Often in life, we can feel overlooked, unseen, maybe unknown. So how does it make you feel 
knowing that Jesus, the God of this universe, oversees, not overlooks your soul. In life, do you ever feel lost at sea, unanchored, directionless? How does it make you feel knowing that Jesus cares about, guides, and shepherds your very soul? And yet, for him to become this great overseer for us, he had to submit to God, his Father. He had to endure unjust suffering for our sake. Therefore, we can trust him and his ways. He is for us, and he will help us follow in his footsteps. So let's look a little more closely at what this submission to God and to others looks like. Well, verse 17 spells it out quite clearly. We're to show respect to everyone, love the family of believers, fear God, and honor the emperor. So no biggie, right? Basically, it's having a changed attitude towards those in every sphere of our lives. Out of love for the Lord, we are to respect everyone. We're to respect those we walk past on the street who have ended up in difficult situations, those we vehemently disagree with about vaccines or abortion laws, those with personalities so different from us that we just don't get them. Every individual, like you, like me, is someone whom Jesus has died for. The same mercy and grace that has been shown to us has been extended to them. And so we're all equals. Now, this way of thinking doesn't come naturally. Often in our pride, we subconsciously compare ourselves to those around us, often looking for reasons as to why we're better or we're really doing okay at life, leading us to judgment and arrogance. Yet these are not the life-giving thoughts of the overseer of our souls. Maybe a helpful prayer is to ask God to help you see every person you come into contact with as he sees them. Or to remember that every person you meet has a handmade by Jesus sticker stuck on their back. So secondly, what does this submission look like? It looks like loving the family of believers. Love, not like. Loving is hard and doesn't always come naturally. It can be hard at times to love those in our, in our families. Yes, I'm aware my parents might be listening in. Hello. I do love you, Mum and Dad. <laughs> um, there are sometimes personality clashes. There are hurts. And it's no different with the family of God. We can be hard to love because we're human. So we won't always like one another. We will come from different backgrounds and have different political inclinations. But we are called to be patient with one another, to be kind, not to envy, not to boast, not to be proud before others, to keep no record of wrongs. We are called to love. So who do you need to love in the family of believers today? Do you need to ask forgiveness of someone, your spouse, maybe a friend, or perhaps you need to grant it? Ask the Spirit to help you. One of the things that certainly helped me as I think about loving people who are different to me is getting to know them. As we build relationship and get to hear other people's stories, their fears, their joys and struggles, it becomes harder to ignore or to treat with contempt those to whom we are joined for an eternity in the Lord Jesus. So perhaps who can you get to know as an act of love this week? So the next way we're called to submit is to fear God, to have a reverence for him, which enables us to see him for who he is. And this idea of fear is really a question of worship. Do we care more about what God thinks of us or what people think? Do we hold his ways as highest or others? Often if we worship something, we see that person or that thing as desirable. 
Our hearts have been captured by it. I wonder, has your heart been captured by Jesus? Do you see how desirable this shepherd and this overseer really is? And if not, are you really seeing him? There's a difference between glancing at a piece of art hung on a wall and gazing at it. As we gaze, we take time to examine the brushstrokes, the perspective from which it's been painted, to think about the reason the artist may have painted it. It's kind of the same with Jesus, sort of. <laughs> we can read our Bible and then move on with the day, allowing our hearts and minds to be taken up with the cares of this world. Instead, let's go to our Bibles and ask God not just to help us glance at Jesus, but to gaze steadily at him, to appreciate him, to know him intimately, to see his beauty, that we might desire him more. And then finally, we are to honour the emperor. So this must be pretty important, as Peter mentions it earlier in the passage in verse 13, so we must really need the reminder. So let's look a little more at this. What does it look like to honour the emperor or to obey the government authorities? would probably be more our language. In telling us in verse 13 to submit to governing authorities, Peter, he gives a reason why. And he says that they're there for the good of society, that they are God's means of administering justice in the here and the now. Now, do remember that Peter wrote this letter at a time when Nero was burning Christians at the stake to provide light for his garden parties. So this is not easy stuff. I also don't think that Peter is suggesting that we go along blindly uh, obeying the government where government laws contradict God's ways. There are other examples in scripture of believers standing up um, for what is right um, when they contradict their government. For example, Daniel didn't worship King Nebuchadnezzar. He stood up um, for, for his God. Admittedly, he did get thrown into a den of lions. However, Praise God that here in Ireland, that's probably not going to happen. <laughs> probably not going to be thrown in Dublin Zoo with those lions. Um, instead, we have means and ways of peacefully protesting um, where our, our laws may contradict God's ways. And also praise God that generally we have a government which is seeking to allow good to flourish in our society rather than evil. But perhaps a place where our submission to the government has been tested recently has been our attitude towards the COVID guidelines. Though we live in a new era of relative freedom from restrictions, the government still has the power to ask us to stay isolated in a single room for one, one week to reduce a fully grown human being. Honestly, this last week, I felt like a puppy dog. I was like sitting in my room, just like waiting for my food to be brought to me. Very strange feeling. But also praise the Lord, I have always that were willing to feed me. Um, and yes, it's a strange thing. The government is able to, to, to ask us to do that at the minute. And so what will our response be when we get that sniffle or that sore throat? Will we take the antigen test that might reveal COVID or not? Will we risk submitting and isolating or just keep our heads down, ply on, hope that no one notices and just hope that we really don't have COVID? Getting on with the activities that we've planned for the week. And who knows what the future will hold with COVID, with guidelines. But Peter does remind us here that any accusations we face from unbelievers should come in light of us behaving well and not in light of our bad behaviour. And as I reflected on this passage over Christmas, it helped to reshape my thinking around um, 
submitting to the government in light of the guidelines, from seeing them as an obstacle to being an opportunity. And my friends were having a New Year's Eve party, um, but unfortunately new guidance had come in, which meant there were too many households. So should I go, should I not? Um, I was also around a couple of unbelievers um, at this time, and I knew that they would see whatever decision that I made. So after reading this passage, I began to think about not going to ensure that my actions would not be a cause for accusation, that it wouldn't be a super spreader event, um, and that in line with the promises of God, God would use this decision to bring him glory before the unbelievers around me. And my decision not to go did bring questions, and it did grant an opportunity to share my reasons for not going from unbelievers who very, the questions come from few and far between. They don't ask questions often. And although I admit I fudged the answer a little bit, which is why from last week's sermon we should always be ready to give a reason for the hope that we have, um, yeah, I was encouraged to see how God had used that decision to bring an opportunity and to share him with others. So let us consider how our attitude to the government perhaps as an opportunity for God's glory rather than an obstacle to our own desires. Okay, so... Finally, as we're looking at this question, what exactly does submission look like? Um, the last point I want to draw out from the passage is that it looks like the outworking of true freedom. Submitting means a going lower than. Yet in our world, submission is often a dirty word, which is often associated with limitation, not freedom. Yet I think we often confuse submission with subordination. Women, certain races, have been, and still are at times, subordinated to others, often cruelly and unfairly. When someone is subordinated to another, it is because they are attributed as having less value than the one who is subordinating them, and it's often forced upon them. This is not what submission is. True submission is a choice, and only free people have choices. It is a choice that is made in giving up your equal rights, your equal value for the sake of others. The choice to be able to serve others rather than being enslaved to our own desires and wants. Richard Foster, a Christian writer, writes, <clears throat> in submission, we are free at last to value other people. We have entered into a new, wonderful, glorious freedom, the freedom to give up our own rights for the sake of others. For the first time, we can love people unconditionally. We have given up the right to demand that they return our love. Do you know the liberation that comes from giving up your rights? It means you're set free from the seething anger and bitterness you feel when someone doesn't act towards you the way you think they should. It means you're free to obey Jesus' command to love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. It means that for the first time, you understand how it is possible to surrender the right to retaliate. This freedom is what Timothy Keller calls humility, not thinking less of ourselves, but thinking of ourselves less. Being free to think of God's desires, to prefer the needs of others. But this is hard. And the only way we can give up our rights, the only way we are free to think and to act like this, is because Jesus did it for us. He submitted to his Father, he chose to go lower than all of mankind, giving up his rights as the son of God for our sake. And he went from the very highest 
eternal loving relationship with the Father to the very lowest, human death on a cross, in order that we might be set free from our enslavement to self-interest, which the Bible calls sin. Jesus has gone through death for you. He wanted to free you from your enslaving self-interestedness so that you could experience true joy and freedom in him, choosing his interests over your own, serving others, going lower out of love. And this life of true freedom is possible because we have a living, resurrected saviour who promises to bring us into this new freedom with him as we trust in him. So, so far we've been answering this question, how are we to face hostility? And we've looked at good deeds of submission to God and others. And then the second thing that the passage points out is this good deed of enduring unjust suffering. So let's look at the second of these. Enduring unjust suffering. Are you kidding? Enduring suffering is one thing, but enduring it unjustly just seems terrible. Peter addresses slaves in verse 18 when he says, how are you any different to the world around you if you suffer for things you deserve? Now just a note on this slavery. This was a kind of indentured slavery, not necessarily the evils of kind of African-American slave trade that we often think of. Due to the nature of society in those times, sometimes it was actually better for people to have a place as a slave than not. But it is interesting that the Bible doesn't call for an uprising of the slaves. It doesn't necessarily mean that the Bible is for slavery, but it demonstrates how God's word speaks into the reality of the broken world that we live in. Some of the slaves were going to suffer unjustly, so God's word equipped them with how they were to respond when it happened. And perhaps similar for us, as we go about living our lives in the places and spheres that God has called us to. There will be suffering that comes unjustly, especially as we seek to submit and to do good. And so God's word helps equip us. In the face of friends or colleagues who perhaps cut us off, take credit for your work, who ostracize you, how are we to endure? So that's the next thing we're going to look at. How are we to endure through unjust suffering? Well, the first thing I think this passage teaches us is that we are to meditate on Christ's example. That this is the key to enduring unjust suffering. We can endure because we have an example in Christ. As Peter says, he gave us an example to follow. Christ suffered for you. Jesus Christ suffered for you. If you have known the pain of abandonment or betrayal, mockery or shame Jesus knows what this feels like and he went through it for you he suffered unjustly for your sake but why? the passage says so you could be healed if you are being mocked Christ was mocked and scorned by those around him as he hung on a cross so that you could be healed if you are being sidelined Jesus was abandoned by his 12 closest friends and betrayed by his very closest one so that you could be healed. If credit for your hard work is being stolen or taken by someone else, well, Jesus lived a sinless life and chose to give you his perfect record so that you could be healed. So that we could live free from the bondage of sin 
knowing his love and choosing to live for him and others. This is what true healing is and knowing everlasting life with him beyond death. Not only did Christ suffer for us, but also let's meditate and look at his attitude through his suffering. When Christ was accused, he did not retaliate. He did not accuse, he did not blame. I don't know what your response to unjust suffering is, but mine is to want to tell everyone who will listen what's been done to me and to dishonor the perpetrator. And yet, what did Jesus do? Instead of screaming or shouting or shaming, those who hurt him, he laid down his life for them, for us. When you sin, Jesus doesn't shame you. He doesn't hang it over your head or bash you on the head with a hammer. He gently forgives and compassionately draws you into his warm embrace. Now, as we look at Jesus' example, I do not think this is a call to emotional repression in the face of suffering. If we go to the psalm, sometimes called the songbook of Jesus, There are heaps of prayers asking God, how long, God? Why do you stand so far off? How unfair it is that the unrighteous prosper as the believers suffer. And think about the time Jesus took to pray, to be alone with his Father. I'm sure some of these words of lament were some of the ones he used. But if Jesus did use these words in the midst of his suffering, they were directed to God, not towards his perpetrators. So let us too take the words of the psalm in the midst of the suffering and use them, turn them into prayers um, towards our heavenly Father. Cry out to him, for he, he hears. So how on earth did Jesus suffer like this? Well, he trusted God's character. And we too must trust God's character if we too are to endure suffering. Like Steve said earlier, we need to know who it is that we're placing our trust in. Look at verse 23. He entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. He knew his father was a just judge. Jesus knew that the evil he faced would be punished, though it would fall on him. He knew justice would be done and that he could trust his father because he knew his heart. He had spent time with him. So how do we as good humans trust God? By getting to know him and asking him to show us his heart of mercy and justice, by meditating on this God of infinite love, by gazing at the cross, but also by recalling his faithfulness to us in past sorrows and sufferings, perhaps by hearing the faithfulness of our God to our brothers and sisters in their sufferings and sorrows. Perhaps reading a Christian biography, I read The Hiding Place Over Christmas, which is um, Corrie Ten Boom, a Christian who... um, faced great unjust suffering. I'm seeing some nods, do you know it? It's a good book. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Who faced a lot of unjust suffering at the hands of the Nazis in the concentration camp. And yet, actually, as another CCCer said to me the other day, I'm reading that book, and we're struck by the normalness, the normality of Corrie Ten Boom. She's just a normal person. Um, But we see the faithfulness and the bigness the goodness of her God in the midst of the suffering. So, how do we endure through unjust suffering? We meditate on Christ's example and we trust in God's character. Yet, as we look at the example written here, 
we know that we have failed and we will fall short of what God asks of us. That we will not always face hostility with good deeds of submission and patient endurance in suffering. And yet, we delight in knowing that Jesus has covered these failings, has forgiven us, and is leading us on day at a time. That he is beside us in our suffering, he's overseeing our souls, and that he's right in the midst of the hostile environment we face by our sides. And so we ask him to continue to bring the healing he has bought for us that he might enable us to live out our true freedom more and more in the face of hostility, submitting and suffering to him for his glory. So let me just pray to finish off. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for revealing yourself to us. We praise you that you are Jesus, we praise you that you are a servant king and that we see in this passage how you served us um, and the depths of your service to us. Um, Father, would you help us to let you serve us day by day? Often we don't like to be helped and we need your help to know how you have submitted, how you have served us, how you've washed us, how you've cleansed us and how you seek to oversee our souls day by day. Help us to know that to rejoice in that, to trust in you, especially in the midst of the suffering, especially in the midst of the hostility that comes um, as your children. So Lord, would you have your way and be with us. In Jesus' name, amen.